Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. This is Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles. Thanks so much for listening to this second part of what I guess is now a series on how to make clean, delicious, natural wine. And I'm doing this partly because of feedback about questions and things that weren't quite described in detail that I skimmed over, as well as the need to really correct at least one term that I used that I used injudiciously and that could cause disaster for you if you took it literally um, or took it the wrong way. So you'll hear that right at the beginning. So please, if you listen to part one, please listen to this to just get that correction and or nuance about that term and what I really should have said or how I should have explained it in the first part to be a little more clear and a little more safe. Also, your feedback is really appreciated. So any feedback on this episode is much appreciated as well. Once again, this is unscripted, although this time I wasn't driving because it was technical and I wanted the ability to make sure like follow notes and make sure I was covering everything to to also be able to come back and edit in a few little corrections and details that if I did miss anything. So it's unscripted, but a little more carefully executed. So thank you again for your you know, understanding and your kindness and your compassion as you listen to this. Look forward for a part three with about sparkling as well as answers to any questions that come up from this episode. I think you're going to enjoy it. And this one is technical and fun. So dig in, grab a notepad, and thanks so much for listening. Okay, I'll jump right in and start by correcting or sort of adding some nuance to something I said last time. I used the term seal, uh, as in ferment your grapes or fruit in a sealed container. And I should not have used the word sealed because that implies airtight, which you definitely don't want to do because if you put fermenting fruit into an airtight container, it will explode. Um, <laughs> so don't do that. I wouldn't even put it into a sealed container with a bubbler on it, like a, a barrel with a, you know, a bung plug with a bubbler sticking out the top because that will even create too much pressure once primary kicks off and it the pressure will just pop that bung right out um, and overflow like a volcano. Let me get even more nuanced and say that I would actually start with the bubbler on, but then once primary starts, I would remove the bubbler and allow that CO2 to escape as quickly as possible to not build up pressure. In fact, having nothing on in the bung hole in a barrel fermentation or something like that. If you're in a flex tank and you're just, uh, you know, have simply the, a little, the bunghole of the flex tank or, you know, any other cask or anything like that, where you just have a small hole. When primary kicks off, just a tiny hole like that might be too much closure. And you, depending on how full you have it. So that's the other thing is learning how full you can fill your barrels for an in-barrel fermentation. Because when primary kicks off, it will create a lot a lot of gas and bubbles and if you have it pressurized in any way it will just you know become a volcano so what i find works best and so this is what i do if i'm doing an in-barrel fermentation i'm just being sure to leave uh, a really good amount of headspace so figure about uh, i'm only filling the barrel about 70 percent full uh, with juice or and same would go with a tank or flex tank something like that 
Uh, you want about 30% of just headspace for gas production. And then you want it pretty open. You don't want it, you don't want that hole plugged up at the top uh, other than, unless you are doing a very cool fermentation, which I'll come back to. So a, a cool fermentation is going to be less vigorous. Um, and then in that case, you do want maybe a bubbler on there. Um, you know, you'll be able to tell and you know what, maybe you'll make a mistake and you will create a little volcano and that's how you'll learn <laughs> how much you can do at, at the temperatures that you're working at um, and how how much, uh, you know, what kind of coverage you should have on your tank. What I really wanted you to do was not seal, or like that, or what I'm recommending is not making an airtight seal on the fermenter, but preventing oxygen from, or just the ambient air from blowing off your CO2 blanket. So you want it covered by something. So what I do, and this is what works really well for me, if I'm not doing in barrel, if I'm doing in barrel, like I said, it's like a 70% full, and then I probably will put a bubbler on, although at a certain point, the bubbler is even too much when you, if you have a really vigorous in barrel fermentation, even if you only fill it 70%. So I'll just open the bung at that point and just leave an open bung hole because it's pushing out so much CO2 at that point, there's no point in even trying to protect it or worrying about oxygen getting in because it's just like a like a, a hose of CO2 squirting out of that bunghole. I'm really enjoying getting the opportunity to say bunghole as much as I'm saying it right now, by the way. Um, okay, so <laughs> back to what I do normally, not in barrel fermentation, is I'll have a macro bin or tea bin where I have must, whatever form, you know, whole cluster, whatever. Um, getting the fermentation going. What I do, I get the, get the grapes in there or fruit and then throw in a chunk of dry ice, for example. Uh, or if I have an active fermentation already going that's producing lots of CO2, I'll just run a hose, uh, literally just a, you know any kind of tube from the active fermentation into the new must bin and let that fill up with CO2 from the active fermentation, which also has lots of sweet esters and things in it, which kind of is nice rather than just straight up dry ice CO2. But in the absence of an active fermentation, I will just throw dry ice in. And as soon as I throw the dry ice in on top, maybe, you know, if I have a macro bin or a tea bin, uh, literally it's just maybe a five or 10 pound chunk of dry ice. It, it produces plenty of CO2 to create a blanket of CO2 on the top of that. And then I lay a piece of painter's drop cloth, which is like a, a roll of plastic sheeting that you can just cut to fit. Um, I'll lay that over the top of the, the bin, the macro bin or tea bin. And then over that, I'll put an old sheet, a clean, but old sheet. And then, so that creates sort of weight and protection as well. And then I, and also reflection from light and things like that, because that plastic is see-through, you know, it, it will allow light penetration. So, uh, just to keep UV out of there, if I'm doing an out, if it's outdoors, I put the sheet over for multiple reasons. And then I strap bungee cords around that so it's nice and firm like a drum across the top of the of the t-bin or macro bin you don't want the plastic or the sheeting to be dragging on the ground this goes back to the cleanliness that i talked about so it's one of the things that i'm careful about you know i don't want those things dragging on the ground um, just creating some connection you know from ground microbes up onto the you know, over the must because that's hanging over the must. Uh, so I'm just making sure to tuck in my corners after I strap the uh, bungee cords around. And what that will, you know, the gas that's being produced by that CO2 is trapped in there 
And I don't open that until fermentation kicks off. I literally like there's well, and, and the reason I don't do that is because I'm in California, Southern California. So my fermentations generally kick off, you know, in a couple days because it's warm. The ambient temperature is pretty warm, um, you know, 80s during the day average. So that creates this really optimal environment for the wild yeast. The wild yeast generally have no problem at, at in that volume of a, of a, of a must, you know, a half ton or a ton of, of grapes or fruit, um, kicking off really quickly. So that CO2 blanket, since it's not being blown off, it's sort of like if you, if you've ever used, um, God, with the, the Coravan where you're displacing, the wine in the bottle by sticking a needle through the cork and you squirt in argon and and it squirts out wine so essentially the the idea <laughs> is that you are preserving the wine by not introducing oxygen and not opening the cork um, but you get to taste the wine so it's like if you're the kind of person who can't drink a bottle all at once this is a way to theoretically preserve the bottle and get a glass out of it um, the same idea applies here by the way I don't think the Coravan works. I've done taste tests after just a week of using it, like where I took out maybe two glasses out of uh, out of a bottle using the Coravan, and a week later tasted it side by side with another bottle that I opened fresh that day, and there were definite differences. So, just a heads up about that. So back to this. So the, you're doing exactly the same idea. You're essentially like replacing the oxygen or other gases uh, in specifically oxygen, you know, replacing that, displacing it with a CO2, which is the heavy, heavier gas, which is going to blank at the top of the must. And then you're not opening the bottle, so to speak, until fermentation kicks off, at which point the must itself will be producing its own CO2 and plenty of it to displace any oxygen that might come in. I still keep it closed. What, what I what, what happens is that coverage the the sheet and plastic sheeting just lifts up you just see a big bubble you know like a big convex top to it so it's no longer sinking down over the must it just gets pushed up but because you know bungee port bungee cords wrapped around the edge don't make it airtight it can squeeze out and it's and it's perfect it's not like this huge amount of pressure building up that's going to rip the sheet off <laughs> or anything like that so it, it kind of works perfectly that way um and then you know, obviously, once that starts happening, I do remove it to punch down the must at once a day. So I'm doing like one a day punch downs for, you know, I mean, look, it, it, this again becomes a stylistic thing. But for me, it's like um, a, a lot of times I'm working with whole cluster for various reasons. And if I want minimal extraction and minimal, you know, uh, yeah, like essentially minimal extraction because I don't want to get it stemmy from the whole cluster inclusion, that once a day is plenty. And I leave a few whole clusters in there as well, uh, un uncrushed, even if I you know crush some at the beginning to help get that fermentation going. I leave some uncrushed so that when I'm doing punch downs, I'm actually squeezing some fresh new juice out of those uncrushed berries. And that's sort of goosing the, the fermentation, giving a little extra sugar to the yeast so that they start, they get like this fresh squeeze juice that they start fermenting again and it's like you know throwing gas on the fire basically so when i cover it back up they immediately are are producing lots more co2 um by getting on by starting to gobble up that fresh juice so that's you know sort of my secret is very not secret i don't know what i'm talking about there's no secret to this it's 
been done by many people for time immemorial. So <laughs> I'm just, uh, you know, telling you what I do, uh, how I've incorporated these things. All of this is in an effort to, you know, keep it probiotic, keep, you know, you don't have to use sulfur. Um, and, and again, the word seal was the wrong word. So just, you know, keep that in mind. Okay, so the, the P de Couve, like that is one thing I didn't mention just now as a way to get started. Um, the P de Couve is a really nice way, especially if you are working in cooler temperatures where your main fermentation, you know, the, the, the main body of the must, whatever the fruit juice or must, whatever it is, pulp that you're working with, is if you're in a, if you're in a cooler climate, like I said, it, it can take a lot longer for that to kick off naturally. And so if you've already started some starter fermentations, the pied de couves, um, then that will just essentially inoculate the yeast. Uh, I mean, inoculate that new must much more quickly. The idea there is you can get a five gallon bucket. So a pied de couve, you basically get a five gallon bucket, you mash a bunch of fruit into it, Actually, what I would suggest, and probably traditionally the way this is done, is get three or four five-gallon buckets and crush some fruit in them because some of those are going to... And do the same thing, like put a piece of plastic over the top of each bucket and wait until that stuff kicks off. Um, and then smell them and see, you know, you don't want to use the one that smells like ethyl acetate <laughs> or nail polish remover. Um or any of the other off aromas that you can get from a microbial spoilage situation. So you want it to smell like a nice clean fermentation and then use that as your, you know, inoculant for the must, the main must when you when that when the fruit comes in. And you can just throw that on top, throw it on bottom. I would throw it on the bottom um, and it's got a little CO2 producing already and it will also rapidly inoculate the main must. So it will start producing CO2 quickly. And you don't have to worry about dry ice, you know, I mean, you can, you know, there's obviously there's still going to be some oxygen a little more than if you created that CO2 blanket. But this is where it's like, you, you know, you roll the dice as a natural winemaker sometimes. I mean, it's, it is a more risky form uh, of fermentation if, if you think, um, you know, it, it, I guess risk is a, a word, a, a word that is fraught with all kinds of meaning. Um, but it, you know, you run, you, you have the op more opportunity for VA, for example, in the presence of oxygen. Um, and at warm temperatures, you do more so. So I, I would use the P de Couve if you were in a cooler climate, um, with cool ambient temperatures, like below 65, where it might be not as conducive for the yeast to kick off natively. But if you're in a warmer ambient temperature, uh, outdoor or wherever you're fermenting, um, I would skip the P de Couve and just focus on keeping a CO2 blanket on your must and letting that main must yeast kick off as quickly as possible because it's, it's going to work pretty quickly because of the ambient temperatures being warmer. Um, you, know, you just are in a much better situation uh, for, for that. I mean, you could do both. You could do pied de couve and a CO2 blanket on top. And tr there's really no harm in throwing five to 10 pounds of dry ice on top of your must. Yes, it will freeze those um, berries that or fruits that it immediately comes into contact with on the surface, but it turns to gas so rapidly um, that 
you know, it's, it just doesn't cause a problem for the majority of the musk. And yes, right around wherever it touches, you will inhibit yeast production, but, you know, that's okay. It's not going to cause a problem for the major majority of the yeast. All right. I hope that gives a little more detail um, about some of those things. I also wanted to mention, I, I talked about the pH. So I put these upper limits on temperature where I think if you're under 65 is great. If you're un, and pH, if you're under 3.5 is great. There are lower limits to both of those as well. Like there is a nice sweet spot. And for temperature, it's like, you know, if you get down below 55, you're going to have a really slow fermentation. Yeah, fermentation and... Uh, you might inhibit malolactic, or you might have a very, very low, sl slow, slow malolactic uh, process. And pH is the same, so you want to be under 3.5, but you want to, you know, once you get down below 3.1, 3.0, you're, I mean, it's hard for even yeast and malolactic bacteria to do their job. So, you know, that's kind of the range is in there. Um, I mean, there's certainly some yeast that will eventually uh, come in there and and start fermenting it uh, malolactic is a different thing usually usually you'll be able to get some of that but it, it is inhibitive for everything once you get down below 3.1 3.0 so think about that as well as your range you know always you know just <laughs> i realized like i was like under 3.5 but you know you could go down to 2.8 and think that was fine because it's under 3.5 it's not you're probably nothing is going to happen to those grapes well something will but um it won't probably be what you want it to be um and there's probably examples to the contrary of these things this is just you know the mid-range for the most uh success your highest success rate is going to be in this sweet spot and you know outside of these ranges of course is possible and this is where you start rolling those dice and you know make your, making your judgment calls this is where you know <laughs> depends on what you have a stomach for and uh you know what you what you can what you can endure in terms of you know, sleepless nights worrying about whether you've ruined, you know, two tons of fruit um, by some choice that you've made uh, and or whether you just want to, you know, try to, to keep it in that range where it's a little more um, a, a little more assured of success. Although, you know, every, it's, it's like investing. There's no guarantee. Um, I don't know why, if it's like investing anyway. So those are just some touchbacks to some of the things that I mentioned that I should have fleshed out a little bit. Temperature is probably that other one um, where I said under 65. Uh, and now I'm saying an over 55. What I mean by that is that as a, if an ambient temperature, so you don't like the, the must itself will be warm once fermentation kicks off. I mean, it's usually going to come in cool, you know, hopefully grapes. I mean, it depends on where you're picking grapes, when you're picking grapes, but you want the grapes to, or fruit to come in cool ideally um, again temperature does inhibit spoilage microorganisms specifically related to VA and Britannomyces and mouse uh, so you that is I mean I, whether you think of Britannomyces yeast as a spoilage microorganism or not is you know I'm, I'm just throwing it out there uh, don't take it as a judgment call it's just if you want to not have Britannomyces then um, cooler temperatures will help with that uh, it's one of the things. Uh, VA for sure, the VA bacteria are inhibited slightly by cooler temperatures. So generally having cooler temperatures ambient 
during fermentation are great. The must is going to warm up. The must will get up to 90 degrees or, you know, sometimes more depending on how hot and vigorous of fermentation, just by the kinetics of fermentation, the, the, the yeast are producing uh, their own heat, which is why, you know, having an ambient temperature around the fermentation that's a little bit cooler is nice. So you keep that fermentation from becoming this super hot thing um, because, and, and this is, you know, again, we're getting into the realm of subjectivity here, but generally speaking, it's thought of to produce a more subtle, more nuanced, more elegant wine if you have a slower, cooler fermentation. Now, you know, this is definitely like depending on your preference and it's an opinion based thing. So you have to figure out, I I think it would be great if you had the ability to do the same grapes in two different ways where you had a hot fast fermentation and a slow cool fermentation of exactly the same grapes the same year uh, controlling for everything except for temperature and the speed of the fermentation and then see what you like Uh, you know taste that wine after a year taste that wine after two years and see if it makes a difference to you and if it makes a difference which preference which one is your preference Um, because I, 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 I think there will be a difference but whether you like that or not, or think it's worse or better, depending on the cooler versus warmer fermentation may depend a lot on where you are, the style of wine you like, the grapes or fruit that you're working with, um, the style that you're trying to accomplish or achieve. So yeah, lots of things come into play, but that's where, you know, you kind of make a call. I, I, I mean, so much of, there's so many things that are, impossible to control. I mean, there's so many, what am I trying to say? There's so many factors that you can control that temperature is one of those that I, the way that I deal with it is during the fermentation, I'm not too worried about it. Um, you know, I, I have my preferences. I wish it was cool, but you know, I live in Southern California and during harvest, the reality is it's eighties and nineties outside. And that's generally where these fermentations are getting started. Um, and that's just what it is. So I, I concern myself much more with, you know, the pH and the CO2 blanket that I'm keeping on top of the must and just, you know, inhibiting microbial spoilage those ways. Also, one of the other reasons you might be doing your fermentations outside is because of the CO2. So this is a safety concern that I want to make sure to bring up in your effort to control the temperature you know, especially if you're working out of your house or, you know, a space where you're living or whatever, don't bring that fermentation inside, especially if it's a big fermentation, like a couple carboys, no big deal. But if you're in a closed space with a big fermentation, a ton or more, you're producing a lot of CO2 and that is not healthy for you or any other living creatures like pets that might be in that indoor space. So, you know, just consider that that's a one of the other reasons why maybe you're going to be a little more forgiving during primary when you're producing a lot of CO2 with the temperature, you're going to be a little more forgiving with the temperature because you're going to, you're going to want that outside where it is not going to be trapped in a living space with living creatures. And then once primary is done, I am keeping my barrel room cool. So, or the, you know, the winery and where the barrel and the wine is stored, that's going to be under 65. So that's, that's sort of the way I deal with it is like after primary, I want that wine to live in a cool environment. And 
that thereby because it's it's going to live now as it's losing co2 you know that co2 rich wine is slowly that that co2 is slowly dissolving out of solution and therefore your wine is less protected um you don't also want it then to be warm uh, because it will the co2 will dissolve out more quickly and the warm temperatures will favor these other things while your wine is not protected by sulfur um which you know even if you decide to add sulfur you really want to wait till after malolactic is finished to do that so while you're waiting for malolactic to finish your wine is you know un unprotected uh so that's you know, a good reason to keep it in an ambient cool temperature. Um, so I keep, you know, think of it as like whatever happens during the fermentation, if you can control it, great. If you can't, then definitely focus on, you know, uh, the CO2 and oxygen exclusion as well as pH uh, and control pH or managing pH and then also moving it into a cool environment after primary so that it can age in that environment. All right, so those are the follow-ups to the last one, um, to part one, I should say, of the <laughs> of this how to make clean, natural, delicious, natural wine. There's a couple things that I didn't get into that I think I would, I got some questions about, and I think it probably does make a lot of sense because there's a lot of ways that you can screw things up still, even if you've made it through all this. And so racking is uh, is a big question and it brings up several other issues such as hydrogen sulfide which is another what i would say uh spoilage of natural wine um it's it's not caused by you know a, a specific microorganism like brett or you know the acetobacter it is actually created by the yeast and we'll get into that so generally the rule is after primary fermentation you're pressing and then you're letting juice settle and you're going to have these gross leaves that are all the dead yeast cells from primary fermentation that didn't you know get stuck in the must as you were pressing and they are going to be this heavy goopy mass that settles to the bottom and generally the idea is that you rack after 24 to 48 between 24 and 48 hours after pressing and so you let it settle for that amount of time 24 to 48 hours and then you rack off those gross leaves uh, into wherever that wine is going to stay for a long time. Um, there's a couple reasons you would do this, which is you do it quickly uh, because the you, the wine is still rich with CO2 from primary, so it's protected as you're moving it that second time. You know, so you pressed it, you moved it, and exposed it to a lot of oxygen. Now you're moving it one more time, exposing it to a lot of oxygen. But it's early enough in the process and close enough to primary that, generally speaking, there is a lot of CO2 still in there. Um, the exception to that would be if you had a really long maceration, like if you did like a month of on must maceration for whatever reason. Um, some people do that, and it adds things, and it's a stylistic choice. But if you're not pressing till after that, then that is a very oxygen-rich environment at this point, and we're very, I would say, CO2 poor environment for the wine and so you just you know think about that when you're doing that and what, what kind of actions you can take to prevent uh, as much exposure as possible or to protect the wine as much as possible but generally speaking if you're you know i i mean what i'm trying to do generally is press with a little bit of sugar still in the grapes uh, in the must or whatever in the juice and letting that 
that means that it's still fermenting as I'm pressing. So there's yeast that are active that are creating CO2 as the wine is being moved. Um, and then I may not rack off gross leaves. And this is, <laughs> uh, I would say as a rule, especially if you're getting started and you haven't had experience sniffing leaves <laughs> and getting to know leaves, um, there's a difference between gross leaves and then there's, and gross, gross leaves. So like, Ooh, gross, gross leaves. Um, it's it's a sniff difference. Like you can smell it sort of. Like you can smell it on the wine and you can smell it at the end of fermentation too. You, you Generally speaking, you're going to smell hydrogen sulfide and that's where we get into hydrogen sulfide. So hydrogen sulfide, H2S, is that farty broccoli cooked smell, the sewagey rotten egg smell that, you know, is... Unpleasant to me, it is uh, hydrogen sulfide is used to scent natural gas because natural gas is odorless and we can detect hydrogen sulfide at six parts per billion. So it's one of the most, uh, you know, one of the most smelly substances on the planet. Um, there's one more that I, that I will tell you about shortly. So it's, it is something that I, is generally unpleasant. I don't like it. You know, it, it, it is a noxious gas that can, is not good for you like in any large quantity it can kill you so i mean I, to me i just think it makes sense to eliminate that as much as possible from my wine and it is also a very volatile gas which is good for us as winemakers because generally that means that racking um, and exposing the wine to a lot of oxygen will blow off those smells uh, if it's not like an excessive amount when i find h2s uh hydrogen sulfide to to uh, happen most often is in white juice or rosé juice fermentations because the reasons H2S happen, and it's usually in the second half of the fermentation. And, and this is why, because H2S is caused by stressed yeast. Um, yeast produce it in small quantities throughout fermentation, but in the absence of sufficient nutrients, especially nitrogen, the yeast become a little stressed out um, they're not getting their nutrition, full nutritional needs, not eating a balanced diet. And this, that is, you know, something that is much more easy for them to get in the presence of stems and skins and seeds and everything that is in the whole cluster of the grape. You'll, you'll notice it a lot less. And that is because there's much more nutritional value in a whole cluster or even just with on, on skin fermentation, um, than in just a juice fermentation. So that you'll tend to smell it at the end of these juice fermentations. Now, since this is a nutritional situation, this is another area where this kind of thing can be prevented or at least you know, modulated or managed in the vineyard uh, by having really healthy, vibrant vines growing in an amazing soil ecosystem and where they are able to uptake and put into the grapes all of the nutrients that they need and want for healthy grapes for a healthy fermentation so i mean this is literally where the way that you farm and the way the, the the vines can grow and the ecosystem that you build affects the smell of the vine uh the smell of the wine um and this is something that you can measure it's called yeast available nitrogen so if you crush your grapes and do a juice sample before fermentation and send that to a lab they can send you back a yan number and that yan number i've found if it's over 200 generally have no 
issues with hydrogen sulfide. If it's between 150 and 200, it, it depends. This is one of those areas where if I'm doing a juice fermentation, it's likely, um, but if I'm doing a whole, you know, whole, whole cluster, you know, or on skin fermentation, it's unlikely. Um, and under 150 is where you got to start, you know, thinking about the, the health of the vineyard and uh, maybe trying to do some stuff in the vineyard that allow the, the vines to, to get access to more nitrogen. Now, there is a balancing act here, and this is, you know, getting into viticulture as winemaking because you don't want to just like load nitrogen-rich compost into your vineyard if you have low yans because you can create tons of vigor <laughs> for the vines because, you know, nitrogen will really just bump up vegetative growth. And that's not necessarily great for grape quality. Um, so you might increase the yans, <laughs> but you might do other things. You might, you know, cause quality issues another way by having the vines can spending tons of energy on vegetative growth rather than reproductive growth. So there is this balance. Essentially, again, you, you don't want to like think about these things as individual nutrients that you must give, you know, don't think about it in isolation this is a whole system. So you try to improve the health of the whole system because the vines can pull nitrogen out of the air. They just need a, a health and vitality and, and a, a microbe, rich soil so that they can work in combination with the with the micro the, the, the microbes as well as do their own photosynthetic and uh, other jobs help in you know in the best help most healthy most vital way and so you it's not you, you, like yes can you add uh, like a nice chicken manure compost and it definitely has rich of course yeah it's good with you know rich in nitrogen stuff like that but it's not, you know, you don't think of it as like, I'm going to just inject my vines with nitrogen. You're, you're creating, again, soil health and the vines will take what they need. Um, they'll, they'll find their balance. And that's what you're trying to, to help with, just to, to make them feel healthy. Let's say you have nice, let's say for whatever reason, you're not measuring your yans. And even if you do, that's just, now you know it like, great, I have low yans, but I already have fruit and, you know, I already have a fermenting must. So, um, likely going to have hydrogen sulfide is all it tells you. <laughs> um, so let's just assume you encounter hydrogen sulfide at some point in your fermentation journey. And okay, so like I said, it's, it is a, a volatile gas. And so again, what I would do is if I start smelling that on like a rosé or white fermentation, that's just juice, I'm really looking forward to that initial rack off the primary juice when I get it. Because, uh, you know, at that point, essentially my with you know the advantage to uh, a juice fermentation is you don't have to do it like a press and then a rack you're essentially letting the the dead yeast cells and sediment fall out of the juice as it finishes primary and then you only have to rack it once into its new container some people would do it twice but i i, I don't think you need to and the kind of racking that you can you do is would depend to me on whether I smell hydrogen sulfide. If I don't smell it, I'm going to do a pretty reductive or, you know, I'm, I'm trying to exclude oxygen from that, that movement of the wine as much as possible. So there's a couple ways you can do that. One, the simplest way is just using gravity. If you're using a gravity transfer gravity rack, um, then essentially you just put the, the hose or tube at the bottom of whatever vessel you are racking into so that as the wine flows in, it immediately covers up 
the hose and so all the new wine flows in under a blanket of wine and is not being only the top layer of wine is exposed to oxygen and all the new wine flowing in comes in under wine it's still you know obviously there's oxygen exposure there but it's a way to minimize it um, you could sparge that container that you're racking into with a, an inert gas like nitrogen or argon or CO2 if you have like a tank of that or some source of that. Uh, so that's another way that you could exclude oxygen. Um, and then there's, there is a, a whole technique called bulldogging where you are forcing nitrogen into the barrel or tank that you're racking out of and that displaces the wine and forces the wine out. And so you're essentially racking in the absence of oxygen and you can rack to a container that has been sparged with nitrogen as well and so you're you know not that there is zero oxygen exposure but you're minimizing it uh, in every way possible uh, in that and i don't know why it's called bulldogging it's an interesting term it sounds like something that would be much more aggressive and yet it's in terms of like the wine treatment <laughs> like a bulldog but it actually is a, a gentle way to move wine in in the sense that you aren't exposing it to oxygen all right so i looked this up and it turns out bulldogging gets its name from the manufacturer of the bulldog pup wand which is the racking wand that is used for this technique um, it's was manufactured by bulldog manufacturing and so they named the one the bulldog pup and that's where we get the term bulldogging okay so that's that's if i don't smell hydrogen sulfide if i do smell hydrogen sulfide i want oxygen exposure so however i'm racking i'm letting the nozzle of the racking tube stay at the top of the opening that i'm of the vessel that i'm racking into and so that wine is falling and splashing into that vessel so i'm doing i call it a splashy rack so I want to do a splashy rack if I smell H2S. And generally speaking, if you use a pump, depending on the kind of pump you do, there are some extremely gentle pumps that are very expensive. And I know some people that use them because they are trying to be gentle in the wine with movement because pumps, pumps generally do a lot of infusion of oxygen um i mean they're they into the wine so it's sort of like a massive you're aging the wine in in a few seconds <laughs> you know you're rapidly aging it in a few seconds which if you have a big hydrogen sulfide stink on your wine might be a good thing so maybe consider pumping into as a you know using a pump to rack uh in this case where you have a lot of hydrogen sulfide because that generally will blow off uh, you know, if you, if you, especially if you're combining a pump rack with a splashy, you know, and splashy, a pumped and splashy rack will generally give you plenty of oxygen exposure and you shouldn't smell hydrogen sulfide after the rack. Uh, or you might smell a little and then a day later you'll, you'll sniff the bunghole and be like, yeah, it's gone. Um, or it just, it's, it will be noticeably reduced. Um, and so I, I mentioned there are two reasons why. Uh, you would rack off the gross leaves. One, uh, early, you know, right away, and that's at, you know, between 24 and 48 hours after pressing. One is because you still got the CO2. The other is because those gross leaves can contain a lot of that stinkiness um, because they're dead yeast cells that, you know, the yeast gets stressed out and died. So a lot of times they were producing hydrogen sulfide and those leaves, those gross leaves are gross. They're gross, gross leaves because they're stinky and if you re let the wine remain on those gross, gross leaves, then they will, it will infuse the wine <laughs> with that stinkiness. 
So that's the other reason why you, why you might want to rack off gross leaves. However, if you have a pretty healthy fermentation, you don't smell any hydrogen sulfide at fermentation, um, those gross leaves might not be a bad thing. Like, especially if you don't want to move the wine very much, if you're working in the absence of sulfites and you know sulfur, you know maybe you can get away without racking. And I, I certainly try that. I try to keep my wine on gross leaves unless I smell hydrogen sulfide. The other thing is, lees actually can benefit uh, and remove hydrogen sulfide. So they can be both an infusion of hydrogen sulfide if you have gross, gross lees, but if you have clean, fine lees, there's actually a, a treatment for hydrogen sulfide called a lees transplant, where you move stinky wine, the hydrogen sulfide-infused wine, onto new lees that are clean and let it age, and the those lees will actually reabsorb the hydrogen sulfide. I... I not going to get into the chemistry of how that happens, um, but uh, it is a treatment. So good lead, and and I mean personal experience. Um, a lot of times, so if you're doing in bottle fermentations, for example. So this is my personal experiences. I've you know when I uh, crushed Crenshaw Crew for the first time, put it into bottle and reinitiated uh, in bottle fermentation with a little bit of organic sugar in the bottles uh, under pressure. Then, you know, it was all done, disgorged, and I poured out my first glass, you know, pretty much like two weeks after we'd put it into bottle, you know, I was so excited to try it. And I was like, oh, it's beautiful. The bubbles are beautiful. Everything about the, the texture, the flavor, everything is great, but the nose was stinky. It wasn't terribly stinky. And this is, this is the fine line. It wasn't terribly stinky, but, you know, I'm sensitive to these things. This is probably why I'm a winemaker, because I have like this nose that is really sensitive. And um, I was like, man what a bummer and i was like should i just quickly go through and disgorge everything like is it you know is it you know obviously that developed in bottle because of the in bottle fermentation because there was no nutritional value it was just literally raw organic sugar was thrown in there with these yeast that were already just ambient a few little ambient least you know, yeast left over from the primary fermentation and clearly that all developed in bottle and so maybe i should just get rid of all you know disgorge everything and get rid of those leaves well i didn't i was like you know what i've heard this the like the smell is it's definitely detectable and it was detectable to other people it wasn't not, not just because i'm sensitive but it, i could tell that it wasn't this high threshold of h2s because i have enough experience smelling it so i was like let's i'll just leave it in bottle and just keep riddling and let these bottles age on their leaves for a while which is very traditional in champagne and i discovered why because when we opened our, those bottles six months later um and disgorged that hydrogen sulfide had been completely reabsorbed by the in bottle leaves and when we disgorged it was gone uh it just it was like magic and it was beautiful and it was such a great lesson to learn and so leaves can be good is <laughs> the other aspect of this a lot of times this is, like I said, a judgment call and it comes from, you know, having had the experience and rolling the dice a couple of times and, and knowing when it works and what level, you know, just based on that smell, your, your detector, your, your sensory detection, how much is enough and how much is too much um, and what, what will dissipate, what will not dissipate. And this is a call so that you want <clears throat> to, this is another point. You want to deal with H2S if it bothers you, if it's something that you want to avoid in your wine. You want to deal with it early on. Um, number one, again, like I said, because CO2-rich wine still protected somewhat after fermentation, after primary with dissolved CO2. But number two, 
and this is the more important one, H2S in the presence of alcohol. So if you let that H2S stay in there, it becomes a longer chain molecule called a mercaptan. Oh, captain, mercaptan. Um, mercaptans are not as volatile, so they are much harder to remove from your wine. And so essentially once you've aged hydrogen sulfide in your alcohol solution of wine and created mercaptans, it's going to smell like that uh, forever. I hate to say it. The other thing I hate to say is, you know how I said hydrogen sulfide is detectable at six parts per billion? Well, mercaptan is detectable at 0 0.06 parts per billion, making it possibly the smelliest substance on the planet. Uh, there is a way to remove it. It's not a natural solution. It's by adding copper sulfate and uh, you know a tiny bit of copper into into your wine generally um, binds to the mercaptan and pulls it out i have tasted wines that this has happened to where it's been treated this way to me i can always sort of tell there's like a i don't know there's just something about it so it's you know it's just something you want to avoid in my opinion <laughs> um, i don't want the stink and i don't want uh, to treat it with copper sulfate so i try to get rid of uh, hydrogen sulfide while it's hydrogen sulfide before it becomes mercaptans. Now, there is, there is, and this is the other thing, when you have these sort of low detectable levels of hydrogen sulfide, and it's a little bit like, I don't know, it's, it's more like just a, a light sulfur smell, like it's not like rotten eggs in your face, it's more like a, like a burnt match stick kind of thing, or, you know, like a burnt match. It's hard to describe, but it's, it's not it's bordering on stinky and and just being like sulfuric if that makes any sense probably doesn't but uh, so this isn't very helpful but it's it's a lighter smell you'll smell this in barrel and that that is you know it's just called reduction at that point <laughs> i wouldn't call it the stinkies and reduction actually is not a bad thing you know i mean eventually it will go away because your wine is oxidizing slowly over time I mean, reduction literally just means the absence of oxygen so in a way it's protecting your wine you've created a, if you've been really careful like i've you know following the things that i've sort of talked about using a you know co2 blanket and managing co2 well and and not racking too much if you don't have to all of those things will help create a reductive environment and that reduction can sometimes just smell a little bit just a little bit like uh, like sulfur and that's not a bad thing that usually will just go away because you are going to bottle eventually you know you're, you're going to expose it to more and more oxygen it's being micro oxygenated if it's in a barrel or if it's in you know a, a clay vessel of any kind it might be being more than <laughs> micro oxygenated depending on your vessel uh yeah it, generally speaking you you that will go away and it, it's actually like a little protective thing again this is hard and this is like getting into the finer points of like learning from experience and just knowing these differences by just smelling sort of like being able to go out into a vineyard and bite into a grape but not have to measure it and be like yeah that's ready to pick kind of thing that just takes time you got to eat a lot of grapes and come away with a lot of stripped enamel and, <laughs> and and purple lips or whatever but that is the idea of hydrogen sulfide the other thing in the vineyard that i forgot to mention now i'm just looking at my notes that is a prevention for hydrogen sulfide is not getting sulfur on the grapes so this is much harder because one of the reasons that wine can 
develop H2S is because there's already sulfur when the grapes come in because sulfur is the number one organic spray to prevent mildew in the vineyard. So it's the cheapest, uh, most readily available, and it's used enormously. So if you aren't controlling what you're doing, if you aren't controlling the viticulture, likely there's some sulfur being sprayed on your grapes. A lot of times this won't matter. You know, they're generally speaking, good good farmers are stopping using sulfur at veraison and there's a lot of time for it to break down before harvest so you, you're just getting but the grapes do absorb some of that so it's it's embedded in the grapes as well and then the other factor is that the grapes themselves i mean some grapes just tend to have reductive fermentations like syrah is one of those so if you're working with syrah and there's you know several other varieties where this is true and you you probably know it if you're if you're working with them because you have these issues all the time um that's just grape genetics you know it's just the genetics that that you're stuck with because of those grapes and uh so what i do since i work with syrah which is a tends to reduction in the winery is i don't use sulfur in the vineyard to minimize it in every way so i what i do for the syrah is use stylet oil first and then i switch to organicide which is sesame oil and fish emulsion and then i switch finally to cinerate which is a cinnamon oil extract um, and that is the last spray that i use up into veraison and i figure if there's a little bit of cinnamon flavor in my grapes it's gonna be fine i don't mind a little pie spice on my wine haven't experienced that at all so i don't think that actually is the the case i think it breaks down long before but i'm not using sulfur because i'm using these other uh, substances and hopefully that has helped although i can't tell you that it has honestly um i think it again depends on soil health is much more important and but it's just something to consider uh in the vineyard so i think that's it for now again any questions let me know thanks well that was abrupt (laughs) thanks so much for listening if you found any value in this and would love to give a donation for me to be able to continue to provide this information which i basically provide as on a volunteer basis um, you can send a donation to our Venmo, which is at Centralis, C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S. And it will say my name, Adam Huss. And there you go. If you'd love to give a donation. And if you have any questions, of course, please email me or comments at info at centraliswine.com. That's info at C-E-N-T-R-A-L-A-S wine.com. Thanks. <laughs>